This is Hard Reset from BigIfTrue.org. I'm JC Cortez in Vancouver, Washington. I'm Justin Sanders in Houston, Texas. And today on the show, we'll take a look through some of incoming President Joe Biden's first set of executive actions, including some reversals of Trump-era policies. Yeah, and just like Joe Biden's already made some sweeping reversals of Trump's policies, like JC said, he's also made some statements that have come under a little bit of fire. We'll talk about, is his 100 million vaccines in 100 days plan actually that ambitious? Uh, or does it need some reworking? And also, uh, Amazon offering to assist with the vaccine rollout effort. Is there more to that story? But first, lower wage healthcare workers like nursing assistants have been cast as heroes during the pandemic, but their jobs remain poorly paid and difficult to fill. Last week, our co-host Molly Bryant spoke with reporter Emma Castleberry about her story available at BigIfTrue.org about how the pandemic has impacted workforce shortages in the healthcare industry. Emma, I think a lot of us, when we think about healthcare workers, maybe the first people who pop into our heads might be doctors and nurses. And, you know, really, there's a whole ecosystem of workers who are providing care. And one area is direct care. So what is a direct care worker and what kind of work do they do? Yeah, so direct care workers um, is a pretty broad term. It includes certified nursing assistants, which is... um, One group of workers, a lot of nurses, um, registered nurses, are certified nursing assistants before they become a registered nurse. Um, And these these are folks in hospitals. um, And then there's also home health aides, which are people who who obviously work within um, a client's home and give health care in that setting. Um, so those are two, two of the most common examples of these direct care workers, which are sort of the subset um, that, yeah, don't, don't come to mind for people as immediately when we're talking about the healthcare workforce. And what's kind of the compensation for someone who's doing that kind of work versus, you know, like nursing? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, direct care workers are, are considered lower wage healthcare workers, uh, one person I spoke with, um, you know, was very clear that they're not lower, they're not less skilled workers, they're not unskilled workers, that term definitely doesn't apply, they're very skilled, and they're very well trained. Um, But they are lower wage, the jobs don't pay as well. Um, And one stat was uh, the paraprofessional healthcare institute um, reports that 15% of direct care workers actually live in poverty, and then almost half of them receive uh, some kind of public assistance. So so the, the, the financial situation facing this sect of the healthcare workforce is very different from, from that facing um, you know, physicians and nurses. Okay, I think you mentioned home health aides, and I was surprised to learn from your story that there's a, a shortage of home health aides in part because of immigration policies in the United States. So why is that the case? About 25% of home health aides are immigrants. Uh, again, that's a, that's a stat from the Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute. And, and I spoke to William Dombey, who is the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Um, and he did say that, that policies limiting immigration, particularly under the Trump administration, um, have really have really limited the number of home health aides available. Um, we were, you know, that's a 
it's already a, you know, a low paying job. It's a very difficult, demanding job. Um, and with the sort of barriers to entry um, right now for immigrants, that workforce is facing a major shortage. Your, your story mentioned that some healthcare providers that employ home health aides, they didn't really have plans to control infection. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Yeah, there was a there was a pretty uh, dramatic. There was a, what what uh, William Dombey, the president, said was that there was a, a panic uh, when this initially happened. In part because these home these home health aides just weren't sure that that uh, PPE was going to be provided for them, um, and that I think he he said that it reflected sort of a you know some of these some of these companies had infection control policies in place other ones did not um there was there's not a lot of regulation or consistency around safety for these workers i know that um you know we've all heard that the the lack of ppe the shortage of ppe uh personal protective equipment was was a major issue across the board for everyone uh hospitals and, and home health aides alike but this um sector of healthcare worker, I think, was uniquely impacted because they just didn't have a lot of protections in place for them through through the companies that they worked for. What is the uh, the Fauci effect? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting what what led me to this to this to writing this article was sort of hearing anecdotally uh, from some folks in the higher education space that that some um, students of theirs were reconsidering entering into the, you know, they, they were already on this healthcare workforce path, whether that meant, you know, training to be a nurse, training to be a doctor. Uh, and that I was hearing anecdotally that people were thinking about, uh, you know, we're rethinking that choice in face of the pandemic and realizing how, you know, what that could actually mean for them and for their career. Um, but when I really got digging into the numbers and the, and, you know, the actual facts of the matter, it's that, um, People are more interested in medical school. People are turning to the healthcare workforce because they've been so inspired by the kind of work and heroism we've seen during the pandemic. And um, that it's a funny term. The Fauci effect, right? Uh, you know, refers to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, who we've all become very familiar with uh, as of recent years. You know, or this recent year, we probably a lot of people probably didn't know his name last year. Um, and he's very he's very humble. Uh, he, there's a, a, an interview where someone mentions this term, the Fauci effect to him. And he's like, well, I don't really love that it has my name on it. But if it helps more people get involved in healthcare, I guess I guess I'll accept it. Um, so, yeah, it's just referring to this sort of um, seeing we're really seeing a lot more media coverage of people in the healthcare workforce. And it's, it's had an inspiring effect. We're seeing um an 18% increase in the number of people applying to medical school. And they're attributing that to people, to, to Dr. Fauci and to people like him that, that we're seeing portrayed more positively and more consistently in the media. So people are definitely feeling, you know, called into that line of work, but also it sounds like, you know, people are kind of turning to the healthcare industry after a layoff because it, it's a reliable field to get into. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, um, I think that is true. I think that people were finding and there's there's the and that I think the inspiration component plays a role there too. Um, people who might have been working desk jobs or office jobs that weren't super fulfilling for them, um, you know, they were laid off or they you know lost their jobs during the pandemic, and um, even after a long career, maybe maybe as many as fifteen years in one field, they decided this is my opportunity to kind of start fresh and do something that 
that I've been inspired to do. Um, I spoke with um, the Dean of Health Sciences at North Central Technical College, which is actually working on a, um, a CNA training program. They've partnered with Aspirus, uh, which is a healthcare provider, and they're doing this program to help pay for people to train to become CNAs. And they're finding that a lot of their applicants are people who are doing that career shift, either because they've been laid off or, or because they've just been inspired to change change tracks. So your story definitely goes into, you know, those workforce shortage issues um, with the healthcare industry. And one of the issues with calculating that is that those estimates are based on, you know, our current use of the healthcare system. But your story points out that a lot of people have trouble accessing healthcare. So uh, why is that? Yeah, so... um... People of color and people in rural communities uh, access healthcare um, at a lower rate than white people or, or people in urban areas. Um, and there's there's a lot of contributing factors to that. But I think that that's when I um, when I spoke to my sources, they they were saying that's a really important component uh, when we're discussing this shortage because people aren't. The demand that we see reflected now in the numbers, the amount of people that use hospitals, the amount of people that go to the doctor, that those numbers are not reflective of a truly equitable scenario. Uh, when people um, who are from these rural communities or people from lower income communities are insured and are accessing healthcare at the same rates as, as their counterparts, when we all have that access, the demand is, is obviously going to be greater. So, so I know that when people are making these projections about the physician and nursing shortage and the home health care aid shortage, they are thinking about, you know, we have to account for this sort of almost invisible demographic um, and, and just trying to kind of, and that, that makes, like I said, the gap even bigger. Uh, the, the idea of this physician shortage, this nursing shortage, when you account for those numbers, uh, it, it looks even more dire. This is JC Cortez. You just heard Molly Bryant speaking with Emma Castleberry about how the healthcare workforce has changed during the pandemic. You can read Emma's story at bigiftrue.org. Next up on the show, we're going to go through some of the executive orders that Joe Biden has uh, put in place over the first three working days of his presidency. Um, yeah, and just kind of talk about each one, right, JC? That's right. And a few of those I think we, we expected. Yeah, I would say before before we talk about a few specific ones, basically it seems like these kind of fall into a few different categories. Like first and foremost, a lot of these actions are direct reversals of Trump policies, right? Trump executive orders or other things uh, that he put in place during his presidency. And to JC's point, a lot of these I think were expected. Um, and then, of course, a lot of these have to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, which is a, a huge issue facing the country and the world. And I think of everything Joe Biden inherited from President Trump, uh, that's kind of at the top of everyone's mind when it comes to what is the Biden administration going to do in its first six months, year, two years on the job is, is that coronavirus response. So, yeah, out of the 30 that they have listed, 14 of these uh, have to do with the coronavirus response. And a, a large part of that, I mean, these are things that are as basic as wear a, a requirement to wear masks inside federal buildings or on federal properties, which that signals a pretty big difference in philosophy from one administration to the next on how they how to approach the coronavirus. Right. You say you say basic, right? But still very controversial, controversial as well. Absolutely. 
Uh, one of the big ones that is uh, was a major policy change and deals with the coronavirus was the United States will be re-entering the WHO, or we will, I guess we haven't fully withdrawn yet. Is that right? I'm, as I understand it, like we put into, into place a process to withdraw from the World Health Organization, uh, and, but that's, that's being stopped now. We will not withdraw. Right. And Anthony Fauci, who's kind of a, a hero to many, I, I feel, during the last year or so of Trump's administration, kind of became the face of the scientific response to coronavirus, is going to lead the delegation for the United States as they rejoin the World Health Organization. A similar one not related to, to COVID-19, I see on this list, JC. President Biden will rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, President Trump made a, made a big deal about pulling the United States out of that uh, in the second half of his presidency. Um, have you seen some of the the dialogue around this? Specifically, I'm talking about the the Ted Cruz tweet about the Paris Climate Accord. It's it's um, called, gotten some backlash online. To- Man, you know, I saw that from a, a few thousand feet. I saw that. Uh, he, uh, uh, give give it to us because I know that it was a it was a flub. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have the tweet in front of me, but I can paraphrase it pretty effectively. I think Ted Cruz basically said that rejoining the, the Paris Climate Accord was was stupid because it doesn't address problems that face citizens of America. I think he said Pittsburgh as his example. You know, it's not the Pittsburgh Climate Accord, it's the Paris Climate Accord. Um, of course, that is, that is, you can call it pandering, whatever you want. I'm sure Ted Cruz understands the idea that these international agreements do not only affect the citizens of the place they're named after. You know, the Geneva Convention doesn't only apply when you're in Geneva, but <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I, I think the the response to to that tweet was pretty widely just people panning Cruz for for saying that it's, this doesn't make sense. The Paris Climate Accord, of course, uh, deals with the environment that affects everyone that lives <laughs> on the planet. So um, again, I commend Biden for rejoining that. I, I think that was an easy decision, probably for his administration. Not really that controversial. One of the really sharp angles that I saw in the uh, in the criticism that Ted Cruz faced on that was he chose. Pennsylvania. He chose Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to talk about when he just supported a lawsuit to invalidate the votes of the people of that area. <laughs> it's just, just nonsensical, but you know, okay. That's kind of what we've come to expect out of Ted Cruz lately. He seems to have, have changed a lot from his old um, constitutional lawyer days where he was known as kind of the intellectual face of the conservative movement. It seems these days he's kind of not quite hitting those same notes. So... In line with the environmental and, and rejoining the the Paris Climate Accord, uh, another thing that was a really that has been a long story, a long developing story is Biden is also canceling the Keystone XL pipeline again. Yeah, th- another uh, another positive policy here for sure. And you know these things are are maybe debated, and there are people that obviously support building new pipelines and expanding. American energy and decreasing, you know, dependence on other countries to get oil or whatever. But I think generally the public probably doesn't, doesn't, they're, they're happy, I should say, uh, with this move from Biden. And it's kind of reading these uh, executive orders, the ones that directly just reverse things that were big staples of President Trump's administration. It's, it kind of speaks to the futility and idiocy of a lot of these policies that originate with the executive branch because you know any policy that can be in you know put in place with an executive order the travel ban from muslim countries is an example of this right that biden also reversed one of these executive orders can just as easily be undone you know when the next administration from a different party takes over so i don't i don't know if um 
it was worth it for the Trump administration to, to put these things in place. It, I guess it didn't help them win re-election if that was their goal, you know, to rally the base. But um, Biden is making quick work of undoing a lot of these things that were some of the most controversial points in the Trump administration as far as policy goes. And some of the most emotionally driven and, and fraught issues that we've faced over the years. And another example of that um, is uh, the executive order he signed on the day of his inauguration, um, reversing this long fought point the Trump administration tried to push through that we talked about on the show in the past, which was trying to um, exclude non-citizens from being counted in the census. Uh, Biden's executive order explicitly requires that the census includes non-citizens uh, and the population that is used to apportion, uh, you know, congressional representation, et cetera. So many other things um, is, is not just made up of citizens, but of everyone that lives in an area. So another another emotional and um, high profile Trump policy being struck stricken on day one by Biden. OK, so one of these that's not a reversal, that's a really interesting one is a prevention of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And I think that that just takes effect in federal buildings and property. It doesn't, it, I mean, states would still have to implement this for themselves. But it's interesting to me to see that that is a first time implementation of this policy. That's not a reversal that we're just now issuing a workplace sexual orientation and gender identity rule. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just another step on the long path. It's you know, civil rights are never fully settled. You know, like as soon as you help or advance the standing of of one oppressed group in this country, there's always more work to be done. And I think, um, you know, sexual orientation uh, as uh, as far as discrimination uh, on the basis of that has come a long way in our lifetimes. You know, gay marriage was illegal not that long ago. Um, and, and I think that discrimination on, on gender identity is probably the next great frontier in civil rights. So um, Biden and his administration, again, making this a day one, uh, kind of making a statement about how they're going to approach issues when it comes to uh, gender identity. Uh, definitely interesting. And I think this is, of everything I've seen, um, this is maybe the one that's engendered the strongest um, response from the right uh, and been the most controversial, which is... It's interesting that, you know, the, the right that was very pro-Trump for the last four years um, doesn't really seem to care all that much, from my perspective, about some of these reversals of his his very famous, you know, uh, platform issues like the border wall. You know, one of the first executive orders here on this list is ending funding for the border wall. Um, I think that kind of speaks to how the consensus across the political spectrum is that the border wall was always a, a kind of a for show type thing. I don't think anyone really thought it was something that Trump was really going to make a, a huge change with. It was really just about um, these broad sweeping statements that, that Trump loved to make on the campaign trail um, and, and kind of a bridge to nowhere situation. So uh, I think it's interesting to see, you know, what actually fires people up across the political spectrum out of these these Biden actions. And that'll be something we're tracking, you know, over the first hundred days of his administration and the next four years. It might just be a personal thing with me, but I always thought that build the wall was a bit of a code for something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Definitely coded language. And, you know, that's one of Trump's great strengths as a politician is he, he's great at sloganeering and kind of turning things, distilling ideas and policy positions 
into these phrases that can just be hammered over and over again to, to kind of avoid engaging with substantive debate, right? There, there are a lot of other um, things that seem to directly respond to things that happened in the last four years, for instance, requiring executive branch appointees to sign an ethics pledge uh, that bars them from acting in personal interest. You know, ethics pledges don't strike me as the, you know, really strong policy as in like, you know, they're really going to prevent problems in the future. To me, that's a largely symbolic one, uh, like several of these are. But again, I think it's hard not to see that as a direct response uh, from the Biden administration to what's happened in the in the last four years of the Trump uh, presidency. Um, and then, yes, so many of these have to do with the coronavirus. Again, that is that is the issue on everybody's mind. Um, and we got a couple other stories we want to talk about on the show today that kind of directly follow after that and the, the Biden administration's plan for vaccination, right? Absolutely. And Justin, there were a couple of more things that we wanted to talk about today. And one of those, we talk about the coronavirus a bit and the uh, executive actions that have been taken uh, to address that. But there's still some some conversation about just how ambitious Joe Biden's vaccine plan is. So can you tell us about that and kind of fill me in on what's going on and what are people saying? Yeah, absolutely, JC. So, you know, with the, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines now fully approved and being rolled out across the country, this idea of, okay, what does the next month, two months, three months, six months look like as far as the actual vaccination of America? You know, how does that roll out? Um, there have been a lot of problems to this point. I think with the rollout, um, President Trump kind of pushed it down to the state level and basically said uh, there's not going to be a federal coordination of vaccinations. Um, you know, we'll get you the doses. It'll be up to the state to decide how they're administered. Some states certainly doing better than others. I think um, California, from what I've read, is, is really not doing well as far as actually getting the vaccines they have into the arms of people. And there's been a lot of debate and discussion about, you know, having rules and a set of who's allowed to get the vaccine when versus prioritizing just using all available doses. Um, I think there, there's been some troubling statistics that I've seen lately uh, in the last couple of days even. I think the, the number that I saw was um, 46% of vaccines that are, that are getting to the states right now are actually being used, uh, which is obviously troubling when you think about um, this huge challenge we have, which is to vaccinate you know, 330 million Americans or as close as we can get to that. So the Biden administration, of course, had to had to put something in place, had to have a plan. And the first thing we heard about uh, from them uh, upon uh, taking office was that their goal was to vaccinate 100 million Americans in the first 100 days, uh, which is a is a nice round number. It sounds like it's um, you know a good plan. The only problem with that is uh, experts think it's very unambitious. I mean, we're, we're averaging 910,000 vaccines given a day right now, uh, and, and manufacturing capacity on these vaccines is, is only expected to increase. There's also the possibility there could be more vaccines coming onto the scene from Johnson & Johnson and other uh, vaccine manufacturers here in the next month or two. Um, so really, I think if we only give 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days, that's probably not good. That's probably going to end up with a lot of vaccines that are produced not being used. Uh, I'm looking at the story in the New York Times uh, that was published the day after the inauguration uh, on January 21st. Uh, and it essentially says that 
Uh, Pfizer and Moderna at this point have kind of pledged to deliver up to 18 million doses a week. Um, of course, it, it's complicated because those vaccines require an initial vaccine. Uh, and then a month and a half later, you, you get a second dose of the vaccine. So if we assume that we're doing half of that, that still puts us at 9 million new doses a week that could be used. Again, that's more than 100 million in the first 100 days, right? So I just, I think that the Biden administration needs to make sure they're uh, being ambitious enough with this. This is a huge, a huge uh, challenge that's being posed. They inherited a system of distribution that needs to be overhauled, I think, by their own, uh, their own statements. They, they want to greatly ramp up the federal role played in distributing these vaccines, create new vaccination sites uh, across the country. Maybe it's not clear yet who's going to be kind of administering that. Is that going to be, um, you know, the the armed forces, the the health department of the United States, or sorry, the, um, the FDA versus, you know, right now, I think a lot of states are using their own state health departments to do that. So I'm not sure what Biden administration's plan is as far as actually getting the federal government involved. I just, I hope that they will, at least based on everything we know now, increase that that goal of 100 million and, and aim aim a little higher than that i just I, I don't think that's very ambitious it seems like a lot of uh experts are kind of saying the same thing you know on thursday afternoon a reporter asked him uh is is a million shots a day enough and in classic joe biden fashion uh his quote here is when i announced it you all said it's not possible come on give me a break man it's a good start uh, and I just want to say, you know, a good start is not enough. If you inherit a system that already, you know, two months into vaccinating um, this this unprecedented challenge is doing 900,000 vaccines a day, don't just give me a good start. I want to see a plan that's actually ambitious because we have to ambitiously approach this problem, right? So that's, that's one thing that's been on my mind the last few days. Um, and hopefully the Biden administration will will amend their goal and and keep aiming higher than they are right now. I would really like to see some federal leadership on the rollout, especially because you say if it's left up to states or if a large segment of that is left up to states. I mean, you have a state like California, which I mean, it's a, it's complicated. There's lots of economic disparity. It's a, it's got a lot of land mass and just the, the biggest population in the whole country. And so that's it's going to be a complicated one, definitely. But then all over the country, I think about when states refused to expand Medicare under Obama and how some of these state legislatures and policymaking bodies, they don't always make the decisions which uh, benefit their populace as much as they could. And so especially when you're dealing with a, with a virus that could, you know, if, it, if there's a hot spot in the South or if there's a hot spot somewhere else, um, that, that leaves us a potential for further spread. And the vaccines, if it's going to be a hundred, if it's going to be a million people a day, that's going to take nearly a year for everybody or for for most of us to get vaccinated. And that, I mean, that's in line with timetables that I've seen. But like you said, man, we've got computers these days. We've got we've got infrastructure like we've never had before. And and it just seems insane to me that it could take that long. So I'm with you that I think that we could probably do this a lot faster and maybe it's just an abundance of caution. Yeah. And also, I mean, to, to that point, JC, you know, if, if the timetable that we're given is the, the 100% what's possible, we can't do better than that. Then sure. I understand if we don't have the vaccines to give to people, 
then yeah, I'm not going to blame the Biden administration. But if we're being told and we know that there are more vaccines available than what is being administered, then that's a problem, right? No matter who the president is, no matter who's in charge of the Congress, no matter who runs the state governments as citizens in this moment, um, I think we have to demand we do the absolute best we can numbers wise as far as getting these vaccines out. So yeah, I'll be realistic, but if I'm being told by the companies the vaccines are there, the vaccines are being delivered to the states, it's President Biden's job to make this happen and get the American population vaccinated so we can get through this crisis that's, you know, we're coming up on a year in March of uh, just a complete earth-shattering impact of this. So I think that that brings up another really good question, which is, if we're talking about how to roll out these vaccines, there's another interesting story that popped up where a private company has offered to help with this vaccine rollout. Amazon has offered to help out. But how are they? What is their offer? And what are some of the concerns around that? Right. So it's it's very early in this story, right? We don't exactly know what Amazon is actually offering, but we do know that they've said hey, we want to help out with this huge problem. Um, it's a logistical problem. We have this worldwide network of infrastructure that we've built for delivering packages, et cetera. It's, it, sounds, it sounds great if you've never read a story in your life about a tech company in the United States and think that you know these, these offers are always made in good faith. Um, and obviously, I'm not saying that there's no role for a company like Amazon to play in the nationwide rollout of the vaccine, if they can help, if they can help with what we were just talking about, which is maximizing getting vaccines out, that's a good thing. The problem is this is Amazon that we're talking about and people are already, even a day or two after they made this announcement that's very vague, has no actual details, they're asking what I think are legitimate questions. These are questions that um, kind of dovetail off of conversations we've had on the show countless times in the past year um, about when private companies enter into the public sphere, whether that's, you know, a social media network that is used for public discourse, um, or whether that in this case is a private company that has to, you know, by definition, have the the goals of its stakeholders, uh, its shareholders and, you know, profitability in mind, that's, it's, it's very reason for existing. It's not a publicly held company. When they volunteer to help with something like a vaccine rollout, What's in it for them, I think, is a very valid question we have to ask. Uh, and that's the question that's being asked here. Is, is Amazon offering to help vaccinate Americans with the understanding that they will be able to collect data on their role and basically build up this database of, uh, of data about Americans' health? Um, that's, that's troubling, I think, if you're, if you're anyone that kind of keeps an eye on this whole idea of data privacy. And, and data has really become, I think we're all, we all know this, currency for these tech companies the, you know, the more data they can collect, the more they can target their offerings. And for Amazon, I think, um, they want to have a, have a hand in every industry and that includes healthcare. Um, and thus far, I think they've kind of struggled to figure out they're in, in the healthcare industry. I know they've experimented with, you know, the pharmacy business and delivering prescriptions, stuff like that. But is Amazon seeing this crisis, this moment where they, they're trying to fill a, a void, um, as a way to get their foot in the door in the healthcare industry. That's problematic. So definitely a story we want to keep an eye on here uh, as this develops. It, it, the Biden administration hasn't said they're even interested in taking Amazon up on the offer, but you know that could, that could change at any time. And we, we need to know um, what, is, what does this offer from Amazon mean 
uh, as, as far as what they get out of the deal. That's, that's what I'm wondering. Man, I would love to think that human enterprise building these massive, like you said, networks of logistics and infrastructure, uh, that we could use those to a social benefit, that that would, that they would be these great tools for us when we need them. But you're right, there's that profit motive in there. It's defined. Uh, they can be sued if they do things that are that are not profitable. Definitely an important question to stay tuned to. All right, thanks, Justin, for taking us through that. Today's episode was hosted by me, JC Cortez, and Justin Sanders, and you heard an interview with Molly Bryant and reporter Emma Castleberry. This episode was produced by me and Molly Bryant. Our theme is Oh No by Hartle Road. Hard Reset is available on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and rate us to help people find the show. Hard Reset is a podcast from BigIfTrue.org. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit. Support us at BigIfTrue.org slash support. Subscribe to our newsletter at bigoftrue.org slash hard reset. 